I'll be preaching the next two weeks, this week and next week, for Pastor Dave as he's on vacation. We're going to do a little mini-series in, in Job. Uh, so we're going to take a break from Romans for the next two weeks. You know, I've come to realize that people are professionals at lying. All of us lie on a daily basis. So that means we're all liars. Well, why do I say that? When someone asks you, how are you doing? How do you always respond? Good, great, everything's going fine. I'm good, and we smile. We could be having the worst day of our lives, but when someone asks us how we're doing, we always say, good, great, doing fine. We lie because we're either too scared to share our struggles or we're too prideful. And the irony of it is, we are all in pain. We are all suffering. In a broken and sinful world, we all suffer. We lose loved ones. We face debt, disease, famine, injustice, and misfortune. In our adolescence, we're insecure, uneasy, anxious. And as we grow old, things don't get better. We have aches and pains added on those. Yet all the while, we smile and say, everything's good. The reality for us as Christians is that we will suffer in this sinful world. So how can we suffer for the glory of God? How can we, in the midst of our trials, honor our Creator? The answer is found in the story of Job. Turn with me to Job chapter 1. This ancient narrative is a testament to us as sufferers. In two sermons, we're going to look at Job 1 and 2 and learn how we can suffer like a saint. We'll learn in chapter 1 this morning that God has a sovereign plan for your suffering. So the question is, will you humbly submit to God's plan for your suffering or will you rely on your own strength? We'll see from the story of Job how a man went from blessed to devastated in a matter of minutes. Yet he submitted himself to God's power and sovereignty. Job is our example for how to suffer as a saint. Our theme for the next two weeks is given to us in James chapter 5, verse 11. It says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. As we look at Job chapter 1, we'll see God's hand in Job's life. God was working out his plan and his purpose for Job every step of the way. We'll look at this passage from an outside perspective because that's the way it's written. But we must keep in mind that Job doesn't have an outline of the story. Job doesn't know what we know. He can't look at it and say, okay, we're at this part, we're getting to this part. We get a bird's eye view while Job had to experience this firsthand. The first proof of God's working in Job's life is seen in the introduction of the story in verses 1 through 5. Follow along as we read. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 
3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. God blessed Job for his obedient faith. Job was a man of godly character. The passage says he was blameless and upright. Which is very interesting because Job is not of Jewish descent. And the Old Testament is a very Jewish book. But he was a faithful worshiper of the one true God. Job's reputation was known in his land. He was blameless. That means he was spiritually mature. He was pure. He was right with God. And he was upright. That means he was a man of integrity. He was right with others. Job was a saint. He feared God and turned away from evil. That's a good definition of what a true believer looks like. One who fears God and turns away from evil. This reminds us of Proverbs that tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 3, 7 says, Be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. Job was righteous, Job was wise, and he was blessed. Job was blessed with family, fortune, and fame. He had a large family of seven sons and three daughters. Would have been a symbol and a staple of blessing in those times. Job had possessions. Look at verse 3 again. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very many servants to keep all those animals. Sheep provided clothing and food. Camels provided transportation and milk. Oxen provided food and power. And donkeys provided more transportation and more power. Job had all his bases covered. He was very wealthy. He had a good portfolio. And not only did he have a great family and great fortune, but he also had fame. The passage says he was the greatest of all the people of the east. Uz was probably located in northern Arabia, which is east of Canaan in the promised land. Job was known for his character, his faith, and his fortune. Job had it all. He had the American dream, if you will. Faith, family, and freedom. He had the good life. And on top of all that, he was a man of integrity. As we see in verses 4 and 5, as his sons and daughters would regularly come together to celebrate and feast, Job would offer sacrifices on their behalf just for the possibility that they might sin against God. And he did this regularly. Job's faith caused him to be sensitive to not only his own sin, but also to the sin of those he loved. Job knew that his God is holy and just, so he regularly interceded on their behalf. He was a man of character, 
Job had a proper view of God and a proper view of himself. And that fact, that characteristic of Job, will greatly influence the outcome of this story. As we see the blessings that God had given Job, I can't help but feel a little guilty for all that I'm blessed with. None of us is near Job's level of integrity, yet we so often take for granted all of God's blessings. We squander our time and money on passing pleasures. We invest in man's purposes and not God's. We spend more money on vacation and cars than we give to missionaries and local churches. And yet all the while we expect God to bless us with fortune, family, and freedom because we go to church once a week. Job was a man of faith. He worshiped God daily. And he knew that God is the giver of all things and that he deserves all of our praise, all of our time, and all of our lives. As Americans, we are very wealthy people. We need to be more mindful of how we use our wealth. We have a short time on this earth to make a difference for the kingdom of God. And yet we waste so much time on building our mounds of dirt that we call home that will just pass away and fade after us. We need to take time to thank God every day for how he has blessed us. This habit of being more thankful to God will change our perspective so that we're more willing to invest our wealth in God's work. The more we understand and the more thankful we are for God's blessings, the more willing we will be to bless others and to invest in God's kingdom. Job was indeed blessed by God with many things. But God had a different plan for Job's life. He could have used Job where he was at. He could have used his wealth and his, and his, fam, and his fame and his family to do great things. But God had a bigger plan. So we see in the rising conflict of the story that God has a plan for Job's suffering. Let's read verses 6 through 12. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the works of his hands and his, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. God had a plan for Job's suffering. The narrative shifts from earth to heaven. We see the courtroom of God. The Lord is seated as the judge of all things. And the sons of God come and present themselves to the divine judge. These sons of God are angels. 
They're God's highest created servants. And they report directly to him. So they're coming before his throne. And in this particular meeting is unique because Satan is also among them. Satan is actually a title that means accuser or adversary. This is the devil, the evil one, the father of lies, the enemy of God, and the serpent of old. The accuser joins the angels in God's courtroom. And it seemed like this didn't always happen because the text says Satan also came among them. Almost like he normally wasn't there. But nonetheless, Satan is there, but he's silent until spoken to. Then God in his timing and by his authority addresses Satan and demands a report. And of course, Satan answers the king. What does he say in verse 7? From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Satan's response was full of pride. This action of going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it is actually a claim of dominion. Satan is saying, I've been ruling the world. Satan is boasting about his reign over the world. The arrogance of the devil is mind-blowing. He stands before his creator and boasts. But sadly, his claim of dominion isn't wrong. Satan is the ruler of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4 says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers so that they don't receive the gospel. So that means that only the Holy Spirit can overcome that. But he's described as the God of this world. Satan has been ruling this earth since the fall. But God is not surprised at this arrogant claim. He's fully aware of Satan's plans. In fact, Satan can't do anything without God's permission. So we see this cosmic tension between the accuser and God. We're on the edge of our seat because this little angel comes and boasts before God of his rule. And we think that God's going to squash him. And in this intense moment, God presents Job as an example of true faith. After this arrogant spiel, God responds with his own flex. He says in verse 8, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. It seems like God is poking at Satan with this statement. Like, hey, you said you're ruling the world. If you're doing such a great job, then what about my servant Job? He worships me. He's faithful to me. You've really dropped the ball with this one, Satan. So how does Satan respond? Verses 9 through 11. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the works of his hands and his possessions and have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. 
Satan says that Job is only faithful to God because God has blessed him so much. He says, if you take this away, Job will curse you. The irony is, Job was blessed because he was faithful to God. But Satan messed that up, as he usually does. God, God blessed Job because he was faithful. But Satan sees it differently. By this accusation, Satan is attacking Job, and he's ultimately attacking God. Satan accuses Job of being coddled to the point that he only worships God for the blessings. He's attacking the very idea that man can be right with God by faith. He's saying that Job's faith is just a front to receive blessings. He says, Job doesn't actually want a relationship with you. Job doesn't actually worship you. He just likes his blessings. He just likes his wealth. He's attacking Job's faith. He's not only attacking Job, but he's attacking God himself. Satan is saying, you have to buy man's praise. Man only wants you for your blessings. Man can't be redeemed. He's lost. Satan thinks that this precious saint will curse God the moment he loses his wealth. This is all bundled up in Satan's accusations. The conflict, the tension is tight. I can imagine as the angels watch this, they're probably expecting God to squash Satan for his lies, for his boasting, for his arrogance before God. So what does God do? We expect him to rebuke the devil. I mean, he just blasphemed God to his face. We see God's response in verse 12. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. This is shocking. God could punish Satan right there and it would be over with. But instead, God permits Satan to attack Job's possessions and family. The truth is, God has a plan for all of this that is beyond Job, it's beyond Satan, and it's even beyond us. Yes, God would allow Job to be severely afflicted by Satan to prove something to all of us, but ultimately, no one can comprehend the mind of God. His ways are far above our ways. So as we read this account, we wonder, what is God doing? Sometimes things happen and we don't understand why. We wonder in our hearts, where is God? What is he doing? But I believe that the lack of explanation into God's plans is actually very insightful. We don't get to know God's plan because we couldn't understand it in the first place. God's thoughts are beyond our thoughts. We can't comprehend all of his plans because we're not God. That's why our response must always be of trust. You have to trust God with your life. You have to trust that as the creator and sustainer of the universe, that he knows best. Things don't make sense to us. And that's okay. We were not made to know everything. We were created by God to worship, trust, and enjoy him forever. Not so that he could explain everything to us. 
I can't stand before you this morning and give you the exact reason for why God is allowing you to suffer. But I know that the outcome is for his glory and our good because he has promised so. And I know that there are reasonable explanations for his actions, but ultimately the reason is for God and God alone to know. He has a plan for your suffering, but the fact is that plan is far beyond what you could ever comprehend. It may be possible that God is using your pain to prove to the forces of evil that his children will overcome the world. He may be using your pain to draw you closer to him, but ultimately his purpose, his plan is beyond our comprehension. So we have to trust God's sovereignty. We have to rest in the fact that the all-powerful, all-knowing creator is in control. And he has promised to work all things out for his glory and our good. In the midst of your suffering, God is always good. And he will accomplish his perfect plan. So trust him. So far in Job's story, we see that God blessed him for his obedience. God had a plan for his suffering. And now in the climax of this drama, we see that God was right about Job's integrity. Let's read verses 13 through 19. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their older brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people, and they were dead. I alone have escaped to tell you. God was right about Job's integrity, as we will see. After Satan received permission to do his work, Job's world begins to crumble. Job received the worst news report ever. And the truth is, he was most likely offering a sacrifice when this all happened. Because verse 13 says, it was the day of his children's feast when the messengers came. And on those days, Job would intercede for his family out of love for them. So he would offer sacrifices for them. So it was most likely Job was offering a sacrifice. He was worshiping God when the messengers came. And the first messenger comes and says, Job, the Sabaeans, a clan from the south, have raided the oxen and donkeys and killed the servants. And the second messenger arrives while the first is still speaking. It says, Job, fire of God from heaven, probably lightning, 
struck the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And while he was still speaking, a third messenger comes. The Chaldeans, a fierce gang of thieves from the north, raided the camels and killed the servants. Then the fourth and final messenger came, probably with tears in his eyes. He tells him, Job, while your children were celebrating and enjoying life, a strong wind struck the house and it fell and crushed them. In August of 2020, my wife and I experienced a derecho. Who knows what a derecho is? A derecho is basically an inland hurricane. We saw winds up to 60 miles per hour. So we're sitting there one August afternoon. All of a sudden, I look out the window, and it's dark. It looked like it was like 9 o'clock at night. And so, you know, we kind of go outside, and there's this thick, dark cloud cover, really low, so dark. And off in the distance, there was this ring of light where the clouds hadn't reached yet. And it was really amazing, the contrast between the darkness of the clouds and this piercing light on the horizon. But it was ominous. You knew something was coming, something bad was coming. Then the wind started to pick up, and the rain started to fall. I remember the wind and the rain was so bad that there was water coming off of the pond out in front of our apartment. There was water sheets literally lifting off the pond and swirling around. I've never seen wind like that. And there's debris flying through the air. I'm sitting there hoping my car doesn't get hit. The power goes out. It was over within like 30 minutes. And we went and drove around Ankeny, and there's debris everywhere. You drive down these side streets and where the houses were, and it looked like it had snowed eight feet, but yet it was debris. I mean, there was about six-foot shrubs all the way down the road, and people are just hacking at limbs, trying to clean it up. Cars were destroyed. Houses were destroyed. There was, a, there was an apartment building. The whole roof got ripped off. One estimator said that the damage caused by the Midwest derecho of 2020 was around $7.6 billion dollars. Wind is a powerful force of nature. Satan used wind, lightning, and people to bring devastation and ruin to Job. At this point in the story, one is on the edge of their seat. The spiritual realm of Satan and his demons and all the angels of God are watching this horror unfold. What will happen next? Verses 20 and 21. Then Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job's response is baffling. After hearing the worst news one could ever imagine, Job fell down and worshipped. He tore his robe, which is a sign of turmoil. He shaved his head, symbolizing a loss of glory. Job is flooded with grief. He's feeling the full weight of this horrifying report. And in this anguish and calamity, Job worshipped God. He trusted God, and he proved that by praising God. 
Look at verse 21 again. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job had a humble perspective even in his suffering. That phrase, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return, is a poetic way of saying, I was formed from the dust in my mother's belly and I will return to the dust. I am a creature from the dirt. Job's resolve is striking. He says, God has the power and the authority to give, and he has the power and the authority to take away as he pleases. Then Job praises the name of the Lord, the absolute one. Job responded to this tragedy with great faith because he understood who he was and he understood who God is. Job had a proper view of himself and a proper view of God. And this is the key to suffering as a saint. We have to be aware of our position as creatures from the dirt. And we must submit to God's authority as creator and king. The chapter ends with the astounding statement, In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. As, we, as amazed as we are at Job's response, I can't imagine how shocked Satan was. His master plan to attack God by attacking his so-called saints didn't work. It failed. God was right about Job's victory, Job's integrity, and that is no surprise. God is sovereign over all things. He knows everything from the beginning to the end because he's planned everything. Every moment of time, God is there because God has planned it. It was so infinitely foolish for Satan to ever think that he could best God. God was and is and always will be victorious. And Job did not curse God. He remained steadfast as God planned. The world cannot grasp this concept of God. So they mock Christians for it. They say, if God is so good and loving, then why do you suffer? Why is there so much evil in the world? And the irony is, the moment that someone admits that something is evil, they're admitting that there's a God. Because there can't be good and evil unless there's a divine lawgiver that decides what is right and wrong. So they can't call something evil and say there's no God. It doesn't work. Good and evil is a necessity of a divine lawgiver. So we respond to these people and we tell them, well, how can you call something evil if you don't believe in God, if you don't believe in a divine standard for right and wrong? But sadly, these answers usually fall on deaf ears. As the world continues to mock us for believing in a good and loving God who is sovereign over all things, remember this. Their problem is not with you. It's with their creator. And know this. When those same scoffers lay down their heads at night, they're in misery and grief. Because deep down, they know there's a God. They know they're in rebellion. And they know they'll have to answer to God. Their problem isn't with you, 
It's with God. This is what Romans 1 and 2 teach us. That each of us has a conscience that knows God exists, but we suppress that truth in unrighteousness. We know it from our own experience. As Christians, we don't claim to know all the answers, but we claim to know the one who does know all the answers. And we trust in him because he's proven himself over and over again. We don't understand why bad things happen, but God does. And God has proven himself to be good by providing us with salvation. We trust God because he saved us by sending his righteous and holy son to be sacrificed on a cross for us. Bad things do happen to good people. God's son is the proof of that. But God uses those things for his greater purpose. God used the shame and horror of the cross to bring salvation and grace to the world. The righteous do suffer. And ultimately, God used the suffering of the righteous one to bring salvation for everyone. You can trust the goodness of God. Now, it's easy to say we trust God, but real trust, as we see in Job, results in genuine worship. Job genuinely trusted God, and that resulted in faithful worship. So if you really trust God, then you will demonstrate that trust by faithfully worshiping him. This is Job chapter 1. So what? The challenge for us is clear. When you face hard trials and tribulations, how will you respond? Will you curse God like Satan wants? Or or will you remain steadfast because you know that God is good and has a plan? Like Job, we need to remember that God is always good. We need to trust that God is always in control. He has written the pages of time before the world began. He is in control of all things. We need to praise God for who he is. Job responded to adversity with adoration. He was able to praise and worship God in the midst of trial because he trusted God's wisdom. We need to grasp that our suffering is beyond us. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 and 18, give us the proper perspective. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 reads, So we do not lose heart. Though our, inner, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction as preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We will suffer in this life, but we've been promised eternal home and heaven with no pain, no fears, no struggles. Paul is telling us in 2 Corinthians that the glory of heaven far outweighs your momentary afflictions. 
When we stand before God, we will be baffled by the weight of his glory. The things that you suffer through in this life won't even be worth comparing to the glory of God. Job had this hope. Later in the book, he says, my redeemer lives in my flesh. I will see God. Job had the hope of eternal life. If you are God's child, then you have the hope of eternal life. And it won't even be comparable to what you face on this earth. God has a plan for your suffering. Your suffering is not meaningless. He is using it for a purpose so glorious, so magnificent, so infinite that no one could ever grasp it except God alone. As we conclude, this book was written from a perspective that gives us insight into God's work. I believe that perspective is to help us in understanding in our suffering that God is at work. We may not know why we're suffering. We may not know all the answers, but we can have confidence that God has a plan and it is always and completely good. Next week, we will start, we'll see part two of this epic drama and we'll look at the big picture of the book of Job and how it relates to us as suffering saints. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us to understand. Lord, help us to grasp this reality that there's more to this life. This life is temporary. It's short in light of eternity. Lord, as faithful followers of you, we can look forward to a weight of glory that is beyond comparison of anything we may go through today. Lord, help us to suffer like saints for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.